This is Talking in Vain, the official podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We connect with leaders in the infusion specialty to discuss issues important to you and your practice. INS podcasts are funded through an educational grant from BD. BD, helping all people live healthy lives. Visit them at www.bd.com. I'm your host, Michelle Barrett, and this is Episode 3 of Series 1, Complications Happen. From insertion site infections to catheter-related bloodstream infections, every patient receiving infusion therapy is at risk for an infection. Despite ongoing infection prevention awareness campaigns, infusion infections still happen. Are you putting your patients at risk? Our guest for this episode, infusion-related infections, is Linda Cook. Linda is an infusion nurse with many years of experience and has held her CRNI certification since 1986. Her experience has covered infusion in hospital, home health, and long-term care, and she is currently working as a clinical consultant for a large manufacturer. She is a past INS board member and a contributing author to the newest edition of the INS textbook. Linda, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So what can you tell us about infusion infections? What is an infusion infection? Well, basically an infusion infection is any infection that can reasonably be linked to the IV system. And that includes, it can be the fluid bag, it can be the tubing, the extensions, the catheters. There's a real huge variety of reactions. They can range from really mild, like just slight redness, maybe a little tenderness, all the way to really severe sepsis. I guess uh, a point that I'd want to make is that the term CLAPSI is sometimes confusing because of the way we use it. The acronym, of course, stands for central line, but any vascular catheter can cause an infection, and sometimes we tend to lump them all together in our minds. Okay, yes. So who's at risk for um, infusion infections? Obviously, anyone can develop an infusion infection, so there's no real member of the population that's exempt from the meticulous care that we need to give. I'd say the populations at highest risk would include the frail elderly and the very young, and of course immunocompromised patients and critical care patients fall into those categories. The risk is according to the duration of dwell time, and because of that we want to remove any unused, any unnecessary catheters as soon as we can. I'd say the insertion site is something we need to consider. The femoral is not recommended as a preferred site, mm-hmm. but if it's at all possible, femoral lines really should be relocated as soon as possible. Okay. And it's really, I think, a safety issue. It's just easier and safer to put in an IJ. So something we have to deal with as a group of professionals is how to keep those sites clean and maintained. Sure, sure. Um, Are there any other sources or factors that contribute to infusion infections? Well, when you look at infection, there are two sources for microorganisms, and one would be endogenous, that's anything that arises from the patient's own flora, and the other is exogenous, which is anything that comes from outside of the patient's own flora. Some of the studies I'm seeing, endogenous infections actually are associated with some of the most 
serious infections resulting from the transfer of bacteria from a site where those microbes should be to a site where they should not be. One of the examples is the transfer of E. coli from the gut to the bloodstream, and you see that uh, it's one of the reasons we try not to use parental nutrition so much because mm -hmm. it can actually cause that to occur. I think um, one of the big culprits of endogenous infections is associated um, when the therapist doesn't change the securement device at the same time that the dressing is changed. And that's a misconcept of exactly how dressings work. The dressing does keep organisms from going through it. It's not only what goes through the top, it what comes from the bottom. Mm -hmm. There are lots of microorganisms in the layers of the skin. And as the skin sloughs, and it's still sloughing underneath that device, those organisms are moving to the surface. And by the time the dressing is changed in seven days, there's a significant colony that can exist underneath that device. Now, some of the other culprits that can cause endogenous growth would be trach secretions, drooling, sweat, uh, oils from the skin that contaminate the site, and then you know, the things that we have no control of, such as I mentioned before, the migration of uh, bacteria mm -hmm. from a diseased gut into the bloodstream. Exogenous contamination is when the microorganisms are introduced from outside of the patient's body. And this contamination can be the device or it can be the equipment. Uh, the two terms that you'll hear used are intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic contamination occurs during the manufacturing process and it's considered very, very rare. It is this type of con uh, contamination though in which you can really get a fatal sepsis because there's so many microorganisms introduced so quickly that you can get um, immediate sepsis for the patient. Extrinsic is by far the more common way in which you see it, and that can relate to any part of the infusion system. Okay, and then as healthcare workers, uh, knowledge and competencies would seem to be the biggest thing here. We have to have the knowledge of what we are working with and how to work with it, but we also have to be competent in being able to perform these things, correct? There was a journal article, uh, the American Journal of Infection Control. It was actually just published, and the study was looking at patients during the flu, uh, not patients, nurses during the flu system season, and it shows that four in 10 of healthcare professionals professed that they came to work even though they had flu symptoms. Hmm. And the ranges, reasons were ranging from they just didn't want to take a sick day, they didn't really think they were contagious, to one I think we can all relate to, they just felt guilty not showing up. True. But besides coming to work sick, there are two things I see that are very relevant when we're looking at infection. And I, the reason I think infections are still a problem, one is really obvious. We don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. Most of the nurses doing IV therapy are not IV therapy experts. And this is a small role of the immense amount of stuff that they need. 
So just getting the knowledge, knowing where to get it, and knowing what knowledge to get mm-hmm. is a huge issue. Now, personally, my bigger concern, I'm going to call it intention, and I don't mean this to be rude, but we're going to call it intention. Studies have indicated that when a practice does not seem to affect us personally, we may omit it. And the sample that comes to mind for me is the cleaning of a needless connector. If every nurse scrubbed the hub for 15 seconds every time, we wouldn't be seeing a push toward poor protectors. But the infections that result from not scrubbing don't show up immediately. And we don't need to accept personal blame because we don't recognize that we're the one at fault. Port protectors are alcohol, or there's one chlorhexidine brand on the market that are placed over the Y site or the needless adapter okay. to use to keep them clean. Okay, so like the needless connector covers. Yes, that's okay. Okay, great. Okay, so what are some indications of infection? Like, let's start. Um, at the very beginning, from the insertion site, it goes to the bloodstream. So what are some indications that we're going to see an infection? You know, they're going to range quite a bit depending on what type of infection you see, depending on the microorganisms responsible, and, you know, whether or not it's an intrinsic or an extrinsic, you know, just how the contamination occurred. Mm-hmm. We start from the very beginning. We just look at site infection, which shows up, Usually, our first hint that something's going, that we would call it an infection, is purulent drainage. Sometimes we look at redness and say, oops, something might be going on, but that can be a multitude of irritations that has nothing to do with infection. Mm -hmm. The presence of a site infection that's been verified that has purulent drainage is not considered an absolute reason for central line removal. A lot of times physicians will just treat that, but it certainly is a consideration that there might be something going on. Mm-hmm. If the contamination is intrinsic, the infection can be very, very rapid with extremely high fevers, and these infections can, uh, can be um, the cause of death. They mm. can definitely kill patients. Now, for extrinsic or endogenous infections, there may be very few symptoms, and symptoms may include fever. The fever may be with or without chills. We can contribute an infection to the central line if there's no other obvious uh, culprit, but um, a positive blood culture really provides the only definitive diagnosis. Yes. So, and briefly then, to touch back, you you had mentioned blood cultures, and that does always seem to be a question that will come up on how are blood cultures drawn, and and how should we do it, and when should we do it? Obviously, number one, follow strict aseptic technique. And that includes don't draw a blood culture through a dirty needleless adapter. Mm -hmm. And it's dirty if it's been in place. So it should be changed. If you want to use an adapter, that's fine, but put on a new one before you draw the culture. Okay. If you're drawing from a central line, you need to waste some blood. And, you know, it depends on the size of your patient as to how much blood you can waste. So there are certain techniques of maybe 
pull, reinstill, pull, reinstill. But one of the issues is that if you pull a lot of heparin in, the heparin can actually diminish the response of the bacteria to the growth medium so you don't end up with an accurate uh, blood culture. Okay. Okay, great, great advice. So prevention is going to be probably our biggest thing. And are there things that we can do um, at different points during an insertion and care of a device? Like at the beginning and during the insertion and after the insertion, like at the beginning, maybe hand hygiene and skin antisepsis. Oh, well, and of course, you know, there are some rules that are never going to change, and hand washing and skin prep are always going to be the basic essentials. Remember to always prep the site with chlorhexidine. I have folks who forget that, believe it or not, unless it is contraindicated. And the back and forth motion using the application is what has been studied and what is approved. Okay. And what about site selection? Does that have... Uh, a role at all in infections? Nurses aren't going to have a lot of say-so over the central line side unless they're doing a pick. But when it comes to peripherals, absolutely we need to take consideration and, you know, avoid an area if there's a rash or there's any kind of wound or anything that might contaminate the site. You know, someone with poison ivy, you don't want to stick it in the middle of the poison ivy sort of thing. (laughs) Um, One catheter per attempt. Please don't forget that. Mm -hmm. And stabilization is so important. I've never seen an absolute study on pistoning. It's a very difficult study to do, but pistoning of a catheter that's not secured is definitely considered to be a big link on um, when infection can occur, that just coming in and out and constantly rubbing against dirty skin. Okay. Don't forget that the hair is dirty. Mm -hmm. It should be trimmed. You want to use clippers or you want to use scissors, do not use a razor. And that's just because shaved skin can leave so many microabrasions, and those really support a lot of microbial growth. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of hospitals have gone away from changing the peripheral sites on a routine basis. And you may hear the term clinically indicated for when they change now. And I think this has been a very positive change in practice. I think part of the philosophy (laughs) to me is that if you have a perfectly good side, it's a perfectly good side. Mm -hmm. And some people just can tolerate a a side for a long time, and we're seeing that. Mm -hmm. But um, also providing an absolute time for when the site should be rotated sometimes doesn't encourage proper site review, if, if I can say that delicately. Yeah, yep. So... Okay. I think so. I think I get what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So clinically indicated really encourages the staff to assess the site, to you know, be a lot more particular about looking at it. What about device selection? Um, we've heard of devices that actually contain material or um, ingredients that can prevent infections. Are those always the way to do it? Well, you know, and those have been on the market for a good long time, both the silver and the chlorhexidine impregnated catheters. There are also some that prevent fibrin formation. And if you can prevent the thrombin, the, excuse me, the thrombin from growing, 
then you're not going to get the biofilm around the catheter. Mm -hmm. And the biofilm is obviously what leads to the infection. So the specialty catheters I see used a lot on burn patients and also on some of the truly critically ill patients. But for the general population, these specialty catheters aren't really recommended. Okay. Um, you mentioned biofilm. Can you tell me a little bit more about biofilm? Because that is really where the infections start, correct? Yeah. Th yeah, that's really the crux of the whole thing. And it's a fascinating talk, but we're going to get into the two-second version of it. Biofilm basically is just a community of microorganisms, and it includes within the biofilm, you can have several different types of bacteria, you can have yeast, and you can possibly even have viruses within the biofilm. And what happens is they begin to develop, the biofilm develops on the catheter. As soon as the catheter goes mm -hmm. in, the protein that collects on the catheter that sort of protects the catheter from its own environment is a great medium for the growth of bacteria. So the bacteria attach to it. And this occurs, well, on all catheters. It's considered within seven days all catheters will have this colony on it. It's not the existence of the biofilm. It's the dispersion of the biofilm that causes a problem because once these millions of bacteria have grown and suddenly are released into the body, then you get this huge dump of microbes that the body has to do something with. And the problem is biofilms are hard to kill. Mm -hmm. They do not react well to antibiotics. Uh, there are some studies using ultrasound that might be successful, but Sometimes all you can do is just remove the cavity because the biofilm keeps contaminating the patient. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I've also heard, too, about a procedure called timeout that actually will help with infection prevention. Basically what timeout is is a deliberate pause immediately before starting the procedure to verify that a correct action is going to be done. And this is a real good time to assess that all of the infection control measures are being followed. Okay. Another thing, too, is line necessity. Can you tell me a bit about why line necessity helps with infection prevention? Oh, well, absolutely. You know, a key concept for infection control is to remove any line that's not necessary because the growth of biofilm can begin as soon as an hour after that line's been put in. And as I said, at seven days, it's considered that 100% of catheters are going to have developed biofilm unless you've used the thrombin, thrombin uh, preventive ones. Even those with chlorhexidine and silver are still going to develop biofilm because it doesn't prevent the development of it. It just kills the, helps to kill the microbes that are on it. So if you can remove the catheter, it's just a, such a safe method, method for the patient. Okay. And how does our equipment play a role in infusion-related infections? Well, you know, any equipment is going to be at risk of contamination. And it's important to remember how dynamic the atmosphere of the bedside is. It's virtually impossible to assure that contamination has never occurred. You just don't think about the time that a 
a pump is beeping and you reach over to turn it off because it just becomes such a natural part that you don't even realize that you've done it. Port adapters are also becoming widely recognized for the prevention of collapsing. The use of passive antisepsis, which is what port adapters provide, is a very old and well-proven concept for killing bacteria and other microorganisms. Two of the advantages of using a port protector instead of using an alcohol swab is that there's consistent disinfecting and it, you know, the whole time that it's on, and it's really nice that it can be audited to assure that there is compliance. It is impossible to audit how somebody uses an alcohol swab. Okay, so that does bring up another question then. How long do you let alcohol dry after you apply it? <laughs> Good question, Michelle. The reason dry time was conceived was because it increases the amount of time that the alcohol was in contact with the microorganisms. And after all, it is still effective while it's drying, so since it's still working, why not go ahead and take advantage of those properties just a little bit longer? Sure. So that brings us to the next question that almost generally follows is, do you need to swab between accesses of the needle system? That's a good question, and absolutely, INS standards do recommend it. Swabbing each time is really the best way to reduce risk. And allowing that to dry. And allowing it to dry. Yeah. Um, Linda, one other thing that has been mentioned as a way to prevent infusion-related infections are safe injection practices. Can you kind of explain what that is? Well, yes, that's actually looking at something very different. That's looking not at how we manipulate the site itself, but how we take care of actually injecting the patients with medications. So when we're giving heparin, when we're giving any medication that we have to draw up and inject into the patient. So it's, um, there's a new public health um, effort out to eliminate unsafe medical injections. So it's literally the reuse of a syringe or the reuse of a vial. The education that's being provided is to try to make sure that nurses understand one needle, one syringe, one-time use, and it targets the use of using single dose over multi-dose whenever possible. Well, Linda, I want to thank you so much for very informative information today. It's just we've learned so much. I appreciate it. Is there anything in, uh, that you want to summarize or finish up with today? Um, not a lot. Really, in summary, I'd just like to say that most of what we discussed is not new to practicing nurses. It's just that we need to always make sure that we're taking credit for our actions and to recognize how our action affects the actual outcome. So, Michelle, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you, Linda. We appreciate your time.